Hey, welcome, friends. Thanks for joining us. If you're worshiping online at our various sites or on our campuses here, thank you so much for being together. And I made a strategic decision. I decided today I'm not going to talk about football. <laughs> and yet I loved Vikings coach Kevin O'Connell's words this week. I don't know if you caught it. I thought it was really well said. He said, it's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to sting. And that's what we're feeling but we're going to rebuild. And I think we should cheer them on to rebuilding, right? I'll tell you what I do wanna talk about is Nehemiah, who I think would share the sentiment of Coach O'Connell, because the walls of Jerusalem and the city have been busted up for a long time. The people are completely broken. And I think he would resonate with those words. It's supposed to hurt. It's supposed to sting. We feel that, so let's rebuild. And we're picking up the story of Nehemiah with this call to rebuild. Each week, we're looking at one of the character qualities of Nehemiah um, that allow him to be the person God wants him to be and to do what God wants him to do and go where God wants him to go. And we want that same reality. We want to be and do and go where God wants us to be and do and go in all of those places. And character matters. It really does swing the door the direction of your life. So we're looking at these character qualities opened up a couple weeks ago with prayer. They have to do more than pray, but don't do anything until you pray. And then last week, we looked at the, the character quality of planning, that great planning that aligns with God's purposes of success for your life is always a prayer plus equation. And we looked at prayer plus waiting, prayer plus courage, prayer plus your attitude, prayer plus the specifics of planning in that journey. And today, we pick up the third character quality, which is motivation. And the message that I want to highlight today is that we're better together when we're in it together that we're not better together just because we come together. We're better together when we're in it together. And that it takes motivation to be in it together in almost all things of our lives. And so even to wake up this morning, it, it took some motivation for you to kick that into gear. To go to work, it takes motivation. Um, to look for a new job takes motivation. To do your homework takes motivation. To read the Bible takes motivation. Just motivation is a huge fuel for getting anything done in life, including in 2023, as some of you are facing a real challenge, it's gonna take motivation to face that challenge. And some of you have the opportunity to seize an opportunity in 2023, and it's gonna take motivation to seize that opportunity. So we're looking at Nehemiah and his life and all of the motivation that comes in and through him. He was a motivated leader who motivated others. So let me just put it personally to you. What motivates you in one word? What is a primary motivator for you when it comes to getting something significant done? and working towards that. Just put a word in your brain. I'm gonna ask that somewhere, you know, maybe over a lunch or a meal, share it with somebody because you can learn something valuable about each other. I asked a few people this week and I got a response from one who said that affirmation is a motivator. When I get affirmed, I get motivated. Another person said clarity. When I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, I'm motivated. Another person just simply said money. And then this one, I thought there's always one in the crowd, said pizza. Because pizza always motivates. And we're looking at Nehemiah and continuing that deep dive into his journey because we find that we left him last week in Susa, which is, modern, is Persia, it's modern day Iran. And now we open it up and he's already made the journey and he's at the footsteps of Jerusalem. 
But the journey between the places, because it's almost a thousand miles, is something to behold. But he secured the protection passes to be able to go through the districts, the tribal groups, the different governors along the way. He's coordinated the massive caravan of supplies, building supplies and timber that would go with him. When, when I'm reading these passages, and I hope you're reading along next week's in chapter three, read chapter three before we come to next week. But I, I visualize what that journey must have been like. And when I was in the text this week, you know what came to my mind? It was um, taking the trip many times through the years from Minneapolis to Milwaukee on I-90. Have you ever done that truck? And it's a caravan of semi-trailers. And it's so impressive, but it never ends. And I think this must have been some of the imagery you would have seen if you were on the path to see this journey that they were making. But while he's making the journey, you know that he's thinking, how am I gonna motivate these people? Because it's been 90 years 90 years, the city is busted up, the people are broken, and he's thinking, how am I gonna motivate it to the end that it will be different? And in those 90 years, there have been two attempts to rebuild the city already, and both of them have failed. And so now he's dealing with that mindset of failure and discouragement, he's expecting to come against it. He comes into Jerusalem, and it's actually worse than he thought. I mean, they're defeated, they're completely um, apathetic. They've been living in the ruins. You know, when you get used to living in ruins, you tend to still live in ruins. It takes motivation to pull yourself out of the ruins and to rebuild your life or realities of your life. And so he's there, he's taking it in, and he's thinking to himself, how am I going to motivate these people? What's amazing is before the end of the week, did you get that? Before the end of the week, he will have majority support of the whole city. And the wall will get rebuilt in 52 days. After 90 years, 52 days, I wanna learn from this guy. Nehemiah just gives a picture of leadership that knows how to, mo how did he get that done? And so today we're gonna look at motivation and the DNA of motivation, how it works, the practices of it, in fact, the practices of Nehemiah could be the case statements to today's modern day social research. I've got many books on motivation. I've gone through them in even preparation for this. I didn't see anything new under the sun. That quite honestly, the, the, the case statements could come right from Nehemiah. And the two that we're gonna look at today, I mean, how do you motivate people? I'm gonna talk about two of them and I'm gonna break them down a little bit, but they're two of the biggest ones and they land in that last half of Nehemiah and the social science research would right off put it there. So you ready to go? Let's take a look at how you motivate. And the first way you motivate is people get motivated when you are motivated. <laughs> that there's a contagion, when, when you're caught up in it, when your life is being changed and transformed, you will, you will release an aroma like bacon because you love bacon. The smell of bacon makes you want to partake of bacon, doesn't it? And that's exactly what happens to Nehemiah. He, he's in it so much to the degree that other people see how he's in it and he is uh, compelling them to be with him in it as well. In fact, um, his, his motivation is powerful to me because it's not rah-rah kind of motivate. It's not jump up and down and go, rah, rah, let's do this, let's rebuild. No, it has substance, it's anchored. Good motivation in leadership and in life has an anchor depth to it. And we're gonna look at that depth today in three expressions of this motivation that he has. It's a motivation that, that really is a, a motivation that moves a person, propels them with an energy forward through sacrifice. It's a prioritization energy that comes through listening. And then it's a, 
a preserving kind of energy that just comes out of wisdom and good choices. So it's just not rah-rah, there's substance and depth and man, I get, can, I love this, I love Nehemiah. Can you tell I'm a little into Nehemiah? Because th- we benefit from this. Look at the substance of it and just ask yourself, do I have this kind of motivation? Am I motivated this way? Do I motivate others this way? And the first is, when you propel energy, people get motivated. And Nehemiah has passion and he has this energy that he's in it And he's not just in it, he's given something for it. In other words, when you're energetically in it and you give of yourself to it, people get motivated, they can see it. When I was in fifth grade, I started collecting coins. On Saturday mornings, I'd go to the bank at two bucks, three bucks worth of coins, and I'd look for wheat pennies and buffalo nickels and Jefferson dimes. And I did that for many, many years. And all the way through my high school year, I was collecting coins. I became a pretty good coin collector, understanding the condition of coins and the coins you wanted to try to secure. I didn't have much money, so I couldn't get the highly prized ones, but I had some good, valuable coins and silver certificate dollars by the time I was 18. I had uh, really amassed quite a good coin collection, just a little at a time, and I was uh, proud of it in many, many ways. I went off to college, didn't come home for that first year of college. My family moved into a different home, so at the end of the year, I came home, and I went to get my coin collection to bring back to college with me, and uh, the box was there, and the coins were not. Most of them were gone, 95% of them were gone. There were some morsels left. There were some silver certificates, some silver coins, but over and all, the, the, the coin collection was gone with, uh, it just broke my heart. And so, you know, I have five sisters and one brother, so I just chronologically went down to each one and interrogated them. <laughs> Take my coins. And they all denied it, didn't even know anything. They claimed ignorance, and I don't know. I, would they lie to their brother? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I didn't know what happened. Either way, they're gone. I don't have them with the exception of these few coins and the, there was a plentiful number of pennies left over. Because people didn't think there was any value to the pennies, right? But I had quite a large collection specifically of steel pennies. So you know in World War II, we, we didn't have copper. Um, we needed the copper for the war. And so they made coins out of steel. And as a young kid, I was just enthralled by these steel pennies that looked different than what we're used to seeing. So I just started to collect them, and I had quite a good collection of them. Fast forward, we're getting to start Westwood in the spring of 1995, and there's a group of 90 people that have met, prayed together, ready to launch this church. And our last gathering together, I'm trying to think of something to give of myself that would motivate us for what God was going to do in and through this church. And I thought deeply, what could I give? And I really didn't have much to give, but I thought these coins, these pennies, I'm going to give them these pennies. And I go, God, you really want me to give these pennies? It's years of saving those pennies. And I thought, no, I'm giving myself. So I gave um, every family unit one of my steel pennies um, at that gathering. Recently, I was in a home and I saw one of those steel pennies framed with our rhythm of life on it. That God gives with open hands we receive, with open hands we give away, God receives glory, honor, and praise. And I go, you were motivated enough to frame a penny? That impressed me, and it lit up my heart. I'm just saying that Nehemiah gave of himself, and they knew it, and would open the doors of motivation to do what they were going to do. 
In fact, when you look at what he did, they were in awe of what he did, that he left the comfort of Susa, this beautiful city in Persia. He, he left the great job that he had as the wine tester for the king. He left the comfort of his home in the palace to come to this mess in Jerusalem, and it's a motivator, and you can just sense his joy and, uh, and purpose around it. When, he, when we read in uh, Nehemiah 2.9, I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And you get a feel for him right there. It's not being arrogant about it, but you can imagine he's thinking, going through these districts and tribal leaders and governors and this big distance, almost a thousand miles, and he's kind of thinking to himself as he's connecting with people, I'm on my way to Jerusalem and look who's coming with me. But it wasn't with arrogance, it was with humility of God's provision. And you know they're thinking, how in the world did he pull that off? How did a servant of the king get the kind of permission to make that trip, to get the protection that came along with it, to get all of the provision of supplies and, t and timber to make that trip? And they're caught up in it. I'm just saying that joyful energy would motivate King Artaxerxes of Persia to let him go. And that joyful energy would be used to motivate the people when they see what he gave up. No, it's motivating. He brings this joyful energy into the journey. Yeah, when you have this propelling energy, it moves people forward. But there's a second aspect related to the way he motivates. That is, when you prioritize energy, people get motivated. That is, you're put into this given place, and if everything's a priority, then nothing is a priority. So you have to take a step back and look at it. You can't do everything, and not everything you can do is worth doing, so you have to prioritize priority. I think it's one of the hardest things. Wouldn't you agree to do in life is there's so many opportunities, so many things and realities in our life to prioritize what is most important. But when you do it right and well, it's a motivator to others in their life and their journey too. I like this about Nehemiah. He's not running in with the cavalry behind him on a white horse and a knight saying, I'm here to save the day. Here I am, I made it. And I even think about him, that long trek. I mean, he had to be so excited to get to Jerusalem. And then to get there, he doesn't come in. Like here, I, we have this phrase at Westwood, there are two kinds of people, here I am kind of people, and there you are kind of people. Here I am kind of people, they walk into the room, and go, here I am, come, love on me, talk to me, whatever it is. And then there are there you are kind of people, and they see you and go, oh, there you are. And they approach you with questions. They wanna know you, hear you, understand you, and you know the power of that. When somebody listens to you, and they understand you, oh, it's a motivator. And you wanna say, thanks for getting me. Whether you agree with that person or not, there's a power that motivates. I like that old axiom, seek first to understand, then to be understood. That is, try to understand truly what's going on. And that's exactly what he does. So much so that this part of the story, it really spoke to me. And I'm not gonna put it on the screen. I'm gonna invite you just to bend your ear and put yourself in the scene. Because it's like a chapter in a mystery novel. And Nehemiah approaches, he doesn't rush in. He takes three days, he suspends, and he listens. And how he does it is included here. So just visualize it with, you, with me, if you would. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. 
Uh, there were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on. And by night, I went out through the valley gate, then the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate, and then the king's pool, examining the wall. And finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone and what I was doing, because as yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work with me. I just think that picture is a powerful picture of just suspending. And he had to be so excited to finally get to his destination and he pulls back for three days and he just takes it in. You know, Peter Drucker, management guru, uh, was a favorite of mine in terms of just the wisdom that he had. And he said, one of the essential characteristics of a leader is their ability to define reality and then do something about it. A lot of people want to define reality but not always interested in doing anything about it. But then to define the reality with accuracy requires a suspending and eliciting, and that's exactly what he does. And he's able to navigate that picture. He motivates others by acknowledging he's heard, he's understood the reality of what they are up against after nine years of living in the shadows of people who would be skeptical. He's in touch with their skepticism. He said, here's the reality. This is the way we're gonna go. And so this issue, when you deal with motivating, do you feel like you're listening well? Are you really seeking to understand the other or be understood that they would understand where you're at? That power of just suspending and being with people where they're at opens the door of motivation. Now, Nehemiah's motivation has depth. It's anchored in a third expression that when you preserve energy, people get motivated. That is, we've done the prioritization, but I have to preserve my energy to do that which has been prioritized. I had the privilege this uh, last week to be with a, a Westwood member who's got a company and his company has is, is just gone through an acquisition. They're bringing everybody together and uh, they, they did a leadership event down in Florida and I got an invitation to participate. I was really honored with that invitation. And John Maxwell was a, a keynote to speak in this gathering. And if you know the name John Maxwell, he would be considered one of today's expert leaders on the subject of leadership. He's got the best selling book on leadership in all of history. So he's an influential voice, voice and just great to be there. And he said a number of things that stood out to me, but I really appreciated these words. He said, everything worthwhile is uphill. Everything worthwhile is uphill. Because our inclination is to want to say everything worthwhile, we want it to be downhill. We want it to be easy. But everything worthwhile is uphill. You have to put one foot in front of another foot in front of another foot to continue on on that track and in that progress. And I think about that as a, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ over 40 years and meeting with couples who are in marriage or relationship tension points and I cannot count how many times somebody said to me, if it's this hard, it must not be right. See, there's this myth that if it's hard, it's not right because we want... We want everything worthwhile to be downhill and easy, but everything is uphill that's worthwhile. And I appreciate that. And, and I want to say out loud to some people along the way, I've been married for 42 years now. Can I just tell you, it's uphill. <laughs> the best of it happens when you put one foot in front of the other. When you hit those walls, what do you do with the walls that you hit? 
Do you let it take you down and get you out? Or do you just say, let's work this through and get to the next? Everything worthwhile is uphill. And that's what you find in Nehemiah. That voices will come in life to try to trip you up. To keep you from going on. Nehemiah faces that straight up. Voices from the outside that try to trip him up. We find these words when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Woo! There's a line in history. People are not interested in promoting by and large the welfare of the Israelites. It goes way back is what I'm saying. That there were people, Sanballat, who was the governor of Samaria, Tobiah, who's the governor of the Ammonites, which is uh, Amman, Jordan area. So the north and the south, they have had business interests. They have had power plays. They powered over these people suffering in Jerusalem and taking advantage of them. And they're threatened now. They're about to lose all those privileges and they're gonna get in the way. So you're gonna see Sanballat and Tobiah come in again and again to try to derail this effort to rebuild the wall. That there are people on the outside who come in and you have to preserve your energy and you have to ask yourself the question, how am I using my energy and who am I using my energy for? There are times, friends, when I'm studying the word and preparing a message, okay, it's like God says, Joel, this is flat out for you. So you take a sit down coffee break with me and I had to do that. Where am I using my energy? There's all kinds of voices telling us what to do, where to go. It can't do everything. How do you step into that? You have to preserve the energy to get the work done that God has called you to do and to find the yes people who want to work together to do it with you because we're better together when we're in it together. We're not better together just because we're together. Friends, if you're in it together with this church, God is doing amazing things. I encourage you to be in it together, not just gathered together. And then Nehemiah faces this. And when I'm reading it, this is what I... I walk away, you know, when, when you're saying, let's do something, and, and, and then there's these voices saying, oh, let's not. It's just disheartening along the way. And what, to, what I took out from it, I, what I wrote down in my, my own journal was, wow, Nehemiah, how he faced that opposition. He did it calmly, confidently, kindly. I'm not using my energy to let you derail me. I'm here on a mission. And he gave himself to what needed to get done with the people who wanted to come alongside. He wasn't brutal with them. He just said, not happening. I'm not giving you the time of day, the best time of my um, energy and resources. There's wisdom when these voices come from the outside. But also, I think even a greater power that comes to take us and derail us is not the voices that come from the outside who seek to tell you you need to do this or you need to do that and you're trying to prioritize and preserve your energy for what's most important because you can't do it all. It's the voices that come from the inside that are our greatest trouble. You're probably more at risk with what thoughts come into your head on the inside than the stuff that's happening outside of you. And I've had my pockets over the last 10 years where I've referenced it several times. I call them the monkeys in my head. And it's like they show up, especially when I put my head on my pillow at night. It's unsolicited. I did not invite them to come. And then there's a monkey all of a sudden in my head chirping things that creates confusion. And then, I don't know, one monkey attracts another monkey. And then I got two or three monkeys and they're competing with each other. It's just a lot of chirping. And, you know, they're, they're frustrating because they discourage you. They confuse you. They take you off of the meaning of what you're all about. So you have to deal with the monkeys in your head. Now, I feel like I'm really being vulnerable 
vulnerable this morning. I just am sitting out on a limb on the edge of a cliff, and I just told you, occasionally I have monkeys in my head, and I'm feeling a little alone in that in this morning. I just, have you ever occasionally had monkeys in your head that have greatly discouraged and confused you? Can I just see your hands for just a Okay, I'll finish the message. I feel, I feel better that we have that. This last year, I came across um, a, a new author for me, um, Dr. Daniel Amen. And he didn't use the metaphor of monkeys. He coined something that's being used quite a bit across the country right now. He came up with this acronym called ANTS, ANTS. And ANTS, he uses an acronym for automatic negative thoughts. And they come unsolicited. And they're like termites. And they chew away at your sense of well-being and of joy. And they confuse your head. ANTS. We get ants that become termites. So how do you deal with them? I'm not gonna share what he says. I'm just gonna share. I've had enough over the last decade to deal with my own monkeys and my own ants, whatever metaphor you wanna use. So I'm gonna share four things with you that I've done that I have found help in. First of all, I talk to God. My first place to go is, God, would you kill the monkeys, please? I just like, be done with them. Get them out of the tree. Get them out of my head. They are not helpful to me right now. I go to God in prayer. Sometimes I call a friend. I just need to call the friend and say, could you help me right now? I need to get something out of my head. It's affecting my day, my life. I need to deal with it. I've got the right kind of friends. I pray you have the right kind of friends. A release of the monkeys or the ants that are chewing away is a, is a blessing. Third, I try to think of a positive memory or experience. Because when you get on the track of positive, you can remove, diminish the voice of negativity. Paul even affirms this. He says, whatever is good, noble, right, or pure, think about these things. Think about the good things. Grab a good memory. Live it out in your imagination. It helps. Or fourth, do something good for others because you get your mind off of yourself and you get into those who have needs greater than your own. It's very liberating. Those are the four primary things that I do. There's a fifth I'm going to give you as a cherry on top. It's uh, extra credit. And that is take a cold bath. I know, if you were at Christmas Eve, I told you I've been doing cold baths since October 22nd, nearly every day. This morning I did a cold bath before I came to church, 45 degree water. It was wonderful. Because it brings a surge. It's like it freezes the monkeys dead. <laughs> it silenced the ants from chewing. You know, they just say, I can't chew right now, a little cold. And it brings a lift to your spirit. I, it's not for everybody. I'm not advocating it that way. I'm just saying, for me, I'm finding a lift, and wow, it's just been a, a beautiful gift in this season of my life, and I'm grateful for it. And so we find that we are in this place, this first motivation principle is an important one, that people get motivated when you are motivated. And it's a, it's a substantial motivation that comes by uh, propelling energy through sacrifice and prioritizing energy by listening well, by preserving energy by wisdom and choices you make. We have enough time for me just to touch on the second biggie because the third chapter of Nehemiah, which I encourage you to read for next week, starts to unpack some of these other motivation principles. But it's the second one I wanna give a little attention to and that is people get motivated when you make them feel something. And that's social science research. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. I'm gonna tell you three things that he made people feel that motivated them. First of all, he put them in a place that is when, when you feel 
I have purpose, you get motivated and you motivate others along your journey. Because to have purpose is a powerful picture and this is what he does. He, he comes and appeals to their sense of purpose by defining the why because you lose your way when you lose your why. And if you've lost your why, you had a hard time rolling out of bed today. And if you've lost your why in work, you have a hard time showing up for work. That's how powerful the why is and the purpose in your life. And, and look how he does it. It's just powerful. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And he appeals to their sense of why and purpose by casting a preferred vision for their community, for their life, that we can do better. Let's believe we can do better and enter into it together. If you notice the pronouns, we, he's never been to Jerusalem, but he doesn't blame them. He doesn't excuse them. He just joins them and say, we can do better than this one. We're better together when we're in it together. He's in it together with them. And then he appeals to their emotional well-being and we will no longer be in disgrace. I mean, does anybody in this space joining us online ever have a day when you just want to feel disgraced, like you've been disgraced? No one has that given place. We want to sense honor in our lives. That's why we need to bring honor back into our relationships. He does this. He appeals to their emotional well-being, but he also does something else. He appeals to the name of God. Because the name of God has been brutally beat up by others. They look upon the God of the people of Israel. They look upon, down upon them as well. And he says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Just take a step back. He said, this king, Artaxerxes, who by the way, um, kept the last building project, he's the one who put the kibosh on it. This king gave me permission to come. This king gave me all the protection that was needed. This king gave me all the provision along the way. And because of that, beautiful gift, he's talking about the favor of God that is upon him. And how do they respond? They're motivated, this is what they say. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. <laughs> All right, but I have a sense of purpose, I'm in. But he doesn't stop there, it's not just a sense of purpose. That is, when I have ownership, I'm also in. You have a sense of purpose, the why is there, but when I own it, I'm part of it, it's different. When Carrie and I transitioned from renting and we were saving our money, we got into our first home, and we were young, Mabel naive, the interest rates in the time were 17%, let me just say. It's crazy, don't complain about today. We walked out of that, I don't know how we got out of that with skin on, but we did. Um, but I'm amazed, the TLC that we gave into the home that we just purchased compared to the home that we had rented. When you're an owner, you give more of yourself than when you're a renter and you're just transactional about it. And that's exactly where we find him in this given place. He comes to his critics and this is what he says. We, his servants, will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We're better together when we're in it together. And if you're not in it together with us and you have no claim, you have no ownership, you have no right to even come into this city. But if you're in it together, oh, you can have ownership. And when you have ownership, you have a sense of God at work in a powerful way in your life, in your community, and everything that's taking place. We're all better together when we're in it. And then finally, when you feel, I see progress. I see progress. It's called the progress principle. I'm not gonna unpack it here. Next week, we really see the progress. But it's true, isn't it? When you see even incremental progress, it's 
It's motivating. You stay, count me in. There's one more verse. And this verse really speaks to the power. People have come around him and said, what makes you think? You've come all this way. You have all this. What makes you think you're gonna be successful? You have people in your life who are that way? And he responds, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. Boy, if you could just stop there. Friends, I don't know what you're going through. But the God of heaven will give you success. If you're willing to be in it with him, he'll give you there. I'll wrap up with this brief story. When I was in Florida, I got to have breakfast with a dear friend I hadn't seen in a number of years. She just recently gotten married and um, got to be together and had a great conversation. She told the true story of the church she's going to. She's a great church and the pastor um, communicated the story about his life that he grew up on a country with his brother and his dad and that on their property, they were avid fishermen in their, their family system and they had a, a stray dog that was on their property and the dog was there all the time. They fed the dog. That's probably why the dog was there all the time but the dog wanted nothing to do with them. It's a stray dog. It did its own thing in its own way. They tried to play with the dog, no success success, anything like that. One day the dad said, let's go fishing. They wanted to go to the rapid stream, the river that was close by. And they made their way there. And sure enough, the dog is hanging out by the river. So they're fishing. The boys decided to play for a while. There's a log that's fallen over to the river. And they decided to walk on the log over the river. To their surprise, the dog joined them on that, that limb. And the boys were just taken back there. So they started to approach the dog. And the dog skirting away, fell into the river and started to go downstream. He could do nothing about it. The dad saw what was happening. He ran downstream, came finally around a bend, was able to get a hold of the neck of the dog and pulled the dog up and saved the dog's life. And the dog followed side by side the dad all the way back up the river. He wouldn't leave the side. This stray dog that always did his own thing would never come close, stay right there because that guy just saved my life. And I'm going to stay there. And all of a sudden, the dog changes. It's a new dog. The dog goes home with them. The boys get to play with the dog. It's become part of the family. They're together in a different way. And I thought, isn't that what it is with God? When you really have an authentic experience with the living God, and you realize that he saved you, you become a new person, and it changes you, and you want to stay by your father because you know the change in your life is due to him pulling you up and out of whatever brokenness you were in at that time, and that's who this God is. He's with us, and now you want to stay close rather than be astray. We have this inclination. We're prone to wander away, but when you're living in the reality of what he, who he is and what he does for you, you stay close to him. And you start to play with his people in the community of faith. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm just saying, friends, we're better together when we're in it together. And best still, we're better together when we're in it together with God, the God of heaven who will give you success. Put him in the middle of your 2023 and you will find goodness in the journey that's ahead. Let's stand and pray together and we'll pick it up again next week. Father God, thank you for the gift of life that pulls up out of brokenness, that changes and transforms us, that makes us new to the end that we want to be right by your side. We want to be with and for you because you have demonstrated you are with and for us no matter what it is we're going through. Help us as a church, not just to gather together, but to be in it together. Move people to that end that they would draw closer to you personally, in their families, but also in our community of faith. All to your glory, we give thanks in Jesus' name, amen.